Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Grief and Rebirth Podcast, whose mission is to educate, enlighten, and provide healing choices through interviews with grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and people who have inspiring stories to share. I'm Irene Weinberg, the creator and host of Grief and Rebirth Podcast, with a loving reminder that you can see the full show notes and all Grief and Rebirth Podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Today, it is my pleasure to introduce Jeannie Zandi, a spiritual teacher who does tremendous work with grief, the dark night of the soul, and transformative healing. Jeannie is the director of Living is Love, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting people to live from their essence as love. A year before the birth of her daughter, Jeannie was plunged into a dark night of the soul that culminated in a radical shift of consciousness. Grief played a deep role in this transformation and Jeannie playfully claimed that instead of meditation, her spiritual practice was weakened. As a teacher, Jeannie is known for her fearless clarity, tender mercy towards humanness, and a juicy poetic and often humorous style that speaks to an ongoing revelation of fully engaged living. Jeannie, a sincere heartfelt welcome to Grief and Rebirth Podcast. I know that we are all going to learn much from you today, especially pertaining to the role of grief and spiritual embodiment and transformative feelings. Let's begin our interview with this question. Please share with us your experience with the dark night of the soul, which led to a radical shift of consciousness due to a profound spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Irene. It's great Thank to be you. on. It's great to be on and to talk about this most vital of topics for human beings, you know, because our our hearts, we need our hearts in order to live here on the earth. And uh, in my experience, um, grief, grief often is what sort of cracks open the seed of the heart to bloom. So, and uh, as I speak, sometimes I will speak very slowly. Sometimes I will pause as I uh, listen in to uh, deeper content than what the everyday mind would spit out. Um, so I would ask everybody's uh, patience with that if that happens. Um, so if there's a pause, everyone, don't go away. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I want to give a little context, which is that. Uh, somewhere early in my life, in my 20s, I discovered 
the useful healing role of grief. And like most people, I grew up in a family where if you were going to cry, go to your room. You know, crying was seen as something that uh, you were being a a bad child if you were crying. Uh, That crying was a sign that you weren't handling it, that you were losing it, and uh, that you were little and broken and in need of help or banishment. You know, this kind of way that our culture looks at at crying, at grieving. And yet, children come out crying up a storm whenever something is stressful or overwhelming or too much for their system to digest, they weep. And somehow in the weeping, they digest the pain, the stress, whatever, whatever happens. And I was lucky enough before being a parent to uh, discover the healing nature of tears. And I began to have as a pastime, because I was interested from a young age in how do I be here harmless? How do I be here as an embodiment of love, of integrity, of clarity? And what I noticed was that in any of my suboptimal human behavior, <laughs> that underneath it, uh, it was coming from some kind of pain, some kind of fear, some kind of grief, some kind of undigested experience with mom or dad or the kids on the playground or whatever. And so I started, um, that's why I joke that grieving was my spiritual practice, because I started being very curious about any place where I wasn't wholesome and sturdy uh, and uh, letting attention go um, in those difficult times to the grieving and just grieving. And so I reclaimed early in my life uh, this beautiful capacity we have as little ones to weep. And I had to go through lots of messages in my head, et cetera. But I had the support of various mentors and, um, you know, classes or whatever that recognize this. I'm so glad because it's been the single most valuable tool in my lifetime, the reclaiming of the joyous, beautiful capacity to emotionally heal. So on that, in that vein, um, being someone who was tuned toward, you know, human potential, wholeness, being here, I think, you know, as uh, my indigenous friends be, say, being here in a good way, we all want to be here in a good way, you know? And I was passionately interested in what does that look like? So one of the things that I discovered along the way was that if I wanted some kind of love from somebody, let's say a boyfriend, I wanted them to love me a certain way and they weren't. And we all know what that feels like. We feel like a bad dog. We feel mad at them. You know, we feel uh, rejected, rejected, all that kind of. Well, I decided probably influenced by this wisdom about weeping as well as Sufi poetry, because Sufi poetry is filled with this kind of, um, you know, Rumi says, I want burning. They talk about devastation. Uh, One of the main Sufi stories about Majnun and Layla includes a man who loves a woman throughout his life, even though he can't have her. He keeps loving her and emptying everything in his heart out that would be anything other than devotional love using Layla 
almost like a, a representation of the holy of God. So with that kind of orientation, I tended to seek to be changed rather than to change. And that doesn't mean that I walked around with a sliver in my foot and let it fester rather than pull it out. <laughs> but there are things to bring our will and mind towards solving. And there are mysteries in human life that are there to actually act almost as muses or as deep forces that, uh, that invite us into transformation, into a kind of a cauldron as we sit with them. Um, especially the things that we can't do anything about. It just makes us feel horrible as we fail to do anything about them. And we don't realize that they are there to shape us. So I noticed that if I sat in the longing for the kind of love that I wanted, and instead of hammering the world to try to get it, I went to the core of the grief. Um, and Hafiz has this poem that you mentioned earlier when we were chatting, let your loneliness cut more deeply. I would sit in that burning, that grief, that wanting. I would just weep. I would stay out of the silly messages in the head, like no one will ever love you and you're a stinker and that's why no one loves you. I would just drop down into the feel of the grief and just let myself grieve. What I noticed was uh, if I did that enough, something would open below the grief and the need to get that thing from the outside would evaporate and the love I was looking for would be alive in my own heart. I thought, okay, that's what I want. You think you were accessing like self-love? I was accessing divine love. I was, I was healing in very elementary terms. I was healing the owie that obscured my deeper nature. And, and we all know what it feels like to seek things from the outside. You know? And of course, there are things we need from the outside, especially to heal things like trauma. Uh, if we haven't attached to our mama, uh, we could get a lot of mileage out of having a therapist who is mama-like who allows us to attach. Mm -hmm. um, this thing that I'm talking about is... Uh, sort of more like spiritually advanced. It's like once we've sort of addressed the very core uh, attachment wounds or, or trauma. Um, and, and at this point, I was a very sturdy, a sturdy human. You know, I was pretty sturdy. So I was able to hold space for myself in this grief. And I also have frequently had people who could hold space for me there, whether therapists or friends or whatever. So I said this big, Prayer. And I said it kind of arrogantly, like we do, you know, when we say those things like, take away everything that's not you, you know, or like bust in here and make me an instrument of your peace. I said, give me nothing that I want. <laughs> and they were listening. <laughs> they were listening. <laughs> because I thought, okay, if I don't get a tiny thing that I want if I don't get that and I am forced to go down to the bottom of the well to the little grabby thing that thinks its life depends upon these things and it lets loose into a deeper contentment or simplicity damn I'm I I want that I want to sit in unconditional loving on this earth uh fully because 
you know, because what's the answer to the because there could be a million answers to the because, you know, like, because I want to be loved, because I want to know God, because I, I want the whole enchilada, you know, and some of us are just on fire for that. So I can't say that that was causal, because what do we know? I'm just here. I'm experiencing life. It happens like this. But uh, around the time that I was uh, about to be married, about to conceive my daughter, uh, things started to go dark, meaning started to drain from the world. Uh, The activities that used to uh, bring joy were flat. I started to not know really who I was. I started to feel a little bit like an alien um, to this world. The things that people were concerned about or wanted to talk about, I was not interested in. There was a much deeper thing going on in me that I couldn't really talk to anyone about because it was so deep and so elementary, elementarily existential. Um, it's similar to a Vietnam vet who comes back from Vietnam and can't talk at a potluck, can't relate because of this deep experience they're having, or when someone loses a child or a spouse, um, when we have or, or get some kind of deep illness. It's like you can't just walk into a potluck and start talking about your uh, struggle with cancer or with deep loss because our culture does not understand those depths. The beings who have been initiated by the depth are few and far between. And by initiated, I mean not only have faced it, but have taken the invitation from the depths of us to take the grief elevator all the way down to the bottom of the well. They're very few. Scary, very scary. Very scary. And, And generally... If we are new to this, you know, I had a lot of practice from the time I was 23 until I was, how old, Four, 35 when this started, you know, shimmering. <laughs> um, I was comfortable. In fact, I was arrogant about my ability to go down and come back up like a phoenix. I could go into that particular piece of pain. I could digest it. And then I could buoy up and be all the more whole and all the more sturdy. It was my way. So, but when this hit, this was like the mother of all darknesses. It was, it, it was similar to when I was um, giving birth to my daughter and the labor pains started and they started really fast. And I was howling and I was thinking arrogantly, oh, this is the pain they talk about. I can handle more pain than this, right? Nay, nee, nee, nee. And then, and then the baby's head engaged, and I was like, <laughs> "Right, hit the deck, you know, you are a puny little thing." So this, this encounter with the depths humbled, humbled me. You know, it's like uh, if anyone has ever done a sweat lodge. Um, which is an indigenous practice. And I have been lucky enough to have um, participated in that. Uh, there's a, a small structure and in the center, in a hole in the ground, um, rocks are put that have been in the fire. 
and water is poured over the rocks, similar to a steam bath. And depending upon how the leader or the healer is running it, it can get very, very hot. People get very humbled by this heat, especially if they're holding a lot in because the heat will force what you have inside you up and it will become unbearable. And part of what people do is they go down to the floor of the, you know, the sweat lodge or what you want to do to put your nose by, by the crack or to feel the cool air. You're basically hitting the deck. You're hitting the dirt. And in this humbling, I hit the dirt. I hit the dirt and I never came up in terms of the level of humility, which is a deep principle of spiritual realization is that the part of us that thinks that it's in control and can direct life and thinks it can, God is its pet and it can just dictate how things go for an authentic spiritual realization, that aspect of us its spine needs to be broken in a way. We need to hit the deck and not come up. We need to see that whatever it is that we think we are with our bossy pants and our sense of control is not the ultimate. The ultimate is we are mastered by it rather than that we could ever master it. Um, And so this dark night, which was, I didn't know this is what this was. I thought I was going crazy. I mean, I, did, I wasn't sitting back going, I said a cool prayer. And now here's the dark night. Like, how lovely. And my friend Kim says, if you, if you think you're in, if you have a spiritual perspective in your dark night, it's not a dark night. Because the dark night rips you of all possible ways of conceiving anything. You may have a moment where you hear a speaker talk and you're like, oh, yeah, that's me. But then in the next moment, you just feel like an utter wretch. Because what you're being asked to do is digest all of the conditioning um, that you have taken in that has, uh, that's built basically on uh, trying to shove down the bad person and trying to cultivate the good person (laughs) versus uh, seeing the essence of ourselves as divine. So that tremendous grief rose, grief that had no name, no memory, fear was there, lack of meaning was there. I had very little reflecting to me what was going on. And I I spent a lot of time alone. And when I did find someone, and they were usually dead poets, Rumi, Hafiz, Rilke was huge. Anything that reflected to me a context that was spiritual instead of a context of I'm failing at life. Because in our culture, when we start to go into an initiation from the dark, which is anything from illness to trauma to loss to a spiritual emergency, we encounter the deep training of our culture that this realm is taboo, that this realm is evidence that you're bad or wrong or messing up. And so the bad advice from the people around us and bless their hearts. They love us and they're giving us the best advice that they've gleaned from the best that they can do, best that they can do. But it often has some level of you're making me nervous. Can you clean that up? (laughs) And that's exactly the wrong thing we need. Then we need people who can listen to us 
without a need to change us, and preferably who have been so initiated by the dark themselves that they bring mercy and understanding and can create a context for us within which to go through this because they're, uh, especially with a dark night or a loss, uh, the only way is through. And, And the way through, actually, if embraced and held, uh, creates maturity, creates wisdom, uh, initiates us into the deeper, yummier, holy depths of divine love and, and wisdom. It's, it's the good stuff. But our culture says it's the bad stuff. So I did. No one wants to suffer. No, 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 no. Some control. Like yes. Illusion of control. Exactly. So one of the most amazing moments for me uh, a few years into this was um, Mira by Star, who edited and tra- translated uh, St. John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul. She was in a sacred poetry class with me at the time, and I was deep in the dark. And I found out that she was doing this, and I said, can I please have your manuscript? I'll just read through it. I'm a good copy editor. In exchange for you letting me read it, I'll just let you know if there's any little this is or that's I find. And when I read that, I alternately laughed and cried and, and wanted to kiss St. John's toes for having documented and reflected exactly what I was going through because I had not seen it reflected anywhere. Uh, occasionally in a poem, occasionally in a piece of writing by Rilke, I would see little hints that perhaps what I was experiencing some other human being on the planet had experienced. Um, and his book, and his book, Ascent of Mount Carmel. And then later I found a lay Catholic named Barbara Dent from New Zealand, who has written a few books. One of them is called My Only Friend is Darkness. Uh, Finally, I saw myself reflected. And up until then, every other book that said Dark Night of the Soul in the title was more about a human hard time. Mm -hmm. And human hard times can send us into the dark and they can initiate spiritual realization, but the dark night of the soul is of another order. It is not caused, it is not caused by a human hard time. And uh, what St. John writes is that the initiate has done all they can do on the spiritual path, and now it's up to God to crack our nut. And that passage is an incredibly receptive one, passive one. And we are not trained in this culture in the yin side of ourselves, in the beauty of surrender, in the the usefulness of receptivity, um, in the power of what grows a baby in a womb, what turns a caterpillar to a butterfly inside of a cocoon, the miraculous nature of the holy as it operates in silence. We are strangers to giving ourselves to that because Everything in our culture reflects tread water, tread water, tread water. There's yeah, something there's horrible no down there. There's no patience for transformation. <laughs> yeah. Get it over with. Get it over with. And, and I just want to say uh, an authentic dark night of the soul is a butt kicker, but so are many other human events on the planet that we can face. And the wisdom gleaned from the dark night of the soul is useful to apply to any other uh, descent because 
we're all going to this, we're all getting our faces held down into the same realm when we have a hard time, whether it's that we're in high school and our boyfriend dumped us or, you know, whatever other tragedies can happen. You know, I would love to ask you on the earthbound plane, while you were going through all of this, did, did that destroy your relationship? I know that your daughter came along mm-hmm. later on. Was that one of the dark night of the soul types of things that happened to you? Um, I would have to say that my relationship at the time was quite secondary to what was happening. And in fact, everything was quite secondary. Um, I would say my daughter's astrology, the moment that she was born, captured the sky at the deepest of my descent. One of my mentors joked that uh, this baby in your womb needs you to be a little bit bigger to be her mother. So we're cleaning house. (laughs) Um, So uh, your teacher in many ways. Oh, beautiful being. Um, The relationship was the context under in which this drama played out on the periphery, you know, on the, but the, the main, the main battle was mythic and, and underworldish and had nothing to do with anything on the earth, <laughs> even though I tried to make it. I tried to make it about the relationship. Oh, I must have picked the wrong guy. In my attempts to think that I was the author of this, because I was still under the impression that I was the author of my life and I could direct it however I wanted. So I must have made a bad mistake if things were feeling this weird. Because one of the things that one of the feelings was something is terribly wrong. And the only time I had ever felt that was when I had made a funny choice or said a little white lie, something needs to be righted. I didn't realize that the lie was actually uh, who I took myself to be. That was what needed uprooting, which is um, very difficult to even get a reflection into unless you're driven there. Um, because it's generally down at the very bottom of the well of our unconscious, these assumptions about I'm in control, et cetera, et cetera. So um, bless his heart, my daughter's dad uh, hung in there as best he could, as I thought it was about him. And then I, I didn't know, I was panicked. I didn't know what the hell was going on. You know, I was the first year was just filled with panic and flailing, you know, and so bless his heart. He was uh, the recipient of a lot of that kind of, you know, I don't know. I, That'd I don't be scary know. for him too. Oh yeah. If you are, if you're connected to someone whose sleigh is going down and you stay connected, your sleigh goes down with them to some degree. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it was difficult. I mean, he, we, we basically, what was true for me was, you know, after the panic and everything and just the deep not knowing, this is what St. John says. One of the things that happens in the dark night is your knowing is just eclipsed. Your will is eclipsed. You're just there in the present moment, digesting what's rising. Uh, And so um, I think what we did was just in a way had, parallel lives. We had this, we we lived together. We had this little being who we both adored and I was able to be an exquisite mother to her. 
she was a beautiful present moment meditation for me, you know, because mothering is a full on job. So it took my attention off of, you know, some of the extra mental haranguing one does when one's going through something like this into a very nice chop wood, carry water kind of a meditation, like change diapers, nurse, sing, play, you know, and, uh, and he was a, a wonderful dad. And so we just kind of hung on through the storm. Um, and then we split up when she was around three and a half. Some of that was, I was now coming out of the dark. Um, but one of the things that I had noticed throughout was this deep pull to be alone, you know, to crawl into a cave like, like a caterpillar, and like a wounded animal. When an animal is wounded, it goes into a safe sanctuary to heal. And this is a deep piece of wisdom from, from uh, nature that in our culture, you know, even poor introverts, you know, it's like you go into your lair and you're, what's wrong with that person? We, we, don't, we don't understand the deep value of solitude. And I had this pull to be alone. Um, but I kept fighting it off because within the culture's model, to be alone is to not be in relationship. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that would be so challenging. And I wanted my daughter to have her dad. I wanted us to be together. Um, but it kept coming. And I, I fought it. I fought it. I fought it. I barely even was conscious of it. And then one day I realized, wow, I, I started having this practice of only saying what was true. Because I realized so many of the assumptions I had built on top of just being and so much of the way I related as a human being was false and driving me crazy. And I saw that the way out of this darkness was to actually let everything go but what I knew to be true and to start speaking those little things. But as any of us know, in close relationship with another being, some of the simple truths can deeply threaten the other person, even if you don't mean them, how they're taking them. And I finally one day said, I need to live alone. And I was imagining maybe a duplex would pass the baby, you know, but he couldn't tolerate that after that many years and a relationship prior that was similarly conflicted. He'd had it. He said, if you need to leave alone, live alone, it's over. And at that point, what was so important for me was to stay simple and true, come what may. And so I, I could, I'd already tried to figure out every other way to do it than the way that was really clearly being willed, not by my will, because it wasn't my big idea, you know. Um, so that uh, caused the relationship to dissolve. And we are still friends and we have co-parented well, um, not without bumps like uh, you know, everyone finds. Um, but, uh, trips through the darkness are incredibly trying, not only for the person who's going down, but everyone who's connected to them because we drop out of the usual lit, bright, socially acceptable way that we show up in relating when we are challenged this deeply. And and that's one of the deepest, uh, one of the deepest challenges to us. I find that a challenge also is that while you are changing, and coming into your truth, you start losing people, shedding people, 
along the way. Yes. And they actually get angry with you. Yes. Because as you're, I've had, I've experienced this with quite a few relationships. I'm not arrogantly telling them how to live. I'm not um, in any way coming from a place that I'm all knowing or whatever, but because I'm more conscious of my relationships and I'm more, um, because what's happened to me, I, in a way I'm role modeling a different way of being. And that's very threatening it is. to a lot of people. Well, it is because when you live here from emptiness, when you live here from the deep living word, from it's hard to speak some of these things in a way the mind can understand them. But when you are living here from holy well, from the freshness and the immediacy of the moment, you basically become an invitation to other people to let go of their shallow ways of being here. And that's terrifying, as terrifying as it was for you <laughs> to enter the dark or more. And they don't realize, it's not like they get a golden invitation that's engraved and says, darling, you know, please accompany me into the dark. <laughs> It'll be okay. It's unconscious. And they just feel like you are something from hell that, that suddenly has, has come to like wreck their party. It is very challenging for people, and um, I have definitely, um, I think the spiritual path, um, only so many beings can deeply be your peers, and there's a deep aloneness that has to be faced um, as we are invited, you know, do we want the truth, do we want the holy, do we want God, or do we want the world? And, you know, the saying, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all else shall be added unto you. The missing, the missing phrase in there is seek ye the kingdom of God and you're going to lose everything. And then everything will be re-added unto you in a totally different way. <laughs> and that doesn't mean, you know, I still have a mom and a dad and brothers and sisters. And it's not like, you know, we turn into, we have an inability to be kind to people. Um, but the number of people who want to dance our dance, a dance that is coming from the truth rather than the culturally sanctioned and acceptable way of being, those people do fade and, and they do get hurt and they do see you as the source of that. I actually recently had someone say to me that I'm too direct. And I was trying. I was just, what? I was too direct. Too and direct. I, too direct. And I yes. was just. I was thought I was being very loving, but I was speaking my truth to this person about something that I had, I had um, uh, understood in this person's life, trying to talk with this person because it's a little difficult when so much is being heaped on you not to respond to that. And the person said to me, um, you're being too direct and it's very intimidating, so I have to pull out of your life. Yes. Yeah. And, and um, here's what's tricky. So there's the, uh, you know, the Zen, Zen poetry will say something like, you know, now that my house has burned down, I can see the light of the moon, you know, and spiritual emergency losses of many sorts can burn down our house. 
And that is a whole process in itself. It's a whole deconstruction of who we think we are and how we think we want to be here. The good news is that we get a deeper sense of why we're here. And oftentimes we also get a, a, an ability to be equanimous and to be loving. That's, you know, those are the bonus parts. <laughs> but the burning down of the house is only the beginning. Because then what happens is our life becomes an answer to the question, how do I be here as an expression of this, of this beauty, of this truth, of this wisdom? And that's the embodiment part. And when we are emerging from the dark and trying to find our way to being both true and harmless, it's really useful to have guides or friends who have a really nice, clean palette who can give us the feedback we need to have because we can be awkward. We can be, we can be too, too direct in a way. And yet, if we take the feedback from every Tom, Dick, and Harry, and Jane, Jane, Jenny, and Joan <laughs> that we run across, we can be just self-attacking ourselves, attempting to be perfect according to the rules of the coping structure instead of the rules of the truth. And I find this is my most beloved. I love holding people through that metamorphosis, but I love the part where we, where we find new legs, new voice, new capacities to actually take this that we have seen and known and function uh, on the basis of it in the world. And there's so much to be sorted out in that process. What is a lie? What is truth? What is tenderness? What is directness? And this is, you know, I know uh, you had mentioned um, my teaching of yin and yang. It's the, really the learning and the development of the beauty of the tender, the open, the receptive, and then the appropriate yang that takes a stand when needed, that takes an action when needed. But the true yang is so informed by the tender-hearted yin that uh, it's, it's um, most effective. And I find that a lot of times when we say, when any of us say, I just spoke my truth, you know, a lot of times we don't realize that we still have a little bit of a rusty sword <laughs> untempered by the depths of a tender heart because being here tender hearted feels like being here as prey. And that You're very vulnerable. Yes. And the the teachings of that, the the tutoring from yin is really necessary for the sword of truth to cut cleanly and to do no harm and to leave no residue. So um, I would both say that we can be entirely embodied in tenderness and de deliver a true yang blow or statement and be accused of being too direct and be left. We can also have a little bit of rust still in there that actually whacked the person on the way in because we're unconscious of it. And so this kind of refinement is a lot 
of the work post-realization um, to really, because nobody wakes up to their true nature and suddenly they're a perfect human embodiment. You know, there's still ghosts in the closet, funky places, places that we don't know how to use certain capacities. We're all works of progress. Exactly, exactly. And that's the humility that allows us to keep learning, but the discernment lets us go to the sources that are most likely to give us a clean reflection. Uh, everything is a potential reflection, but we have to sort it out to see what's mine and what's yours, you know. In your workshops, when someone is working with you, Jeannie, are you helping them discern, to learn how to Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Is that something? So I want to segue to, if someone is deeply grieving, they're troubled, they, they have all of these different things going on in their lives, and they come to one of your workshops, are they going to start to um, receive information that's going to help them? Totally. Tell me how that works when they, when they, I'm crying, I lost this person or this thing is going on in my life. Yeah. And okay, why should I let this lady talk with me and how is she going to help? Oh, me? you shouldn't. I mean, you should only let this lady talk to you if you feel a deep resonance. Otherwise, you know, no, <laughs> I mean, like, I'm not here to tell everybody that I'm what they need. Who knows? You know, everybody's sensibilities in their own gut, in their own heart is always what to follow especially in these more tender places. So that's what I would say for starters. Um, what we need more than anything when we are going down is a context that holds us in that process so that we can see it as an initiation rather than a failure. Mm -hmm. Because if we see it as a failure, we are going to keep scrambling to try to solve something that is not to be solved, but to be lived through. So pregnancy, you see a bump in someone's belly. It's good to know there's a baby in there because then you chill for nine months because you know a baby's coming. If you have a lump in your belly and it's a tumor, you're not going to chill for nine months waiting for the baby to be delivered. You want to get that thing out of there, right? So part of the initial discernment is what's going on. And Unfortunately, there are many, there, there's a, a dearth of beings who can discern all the way from trauma, depression, all the way to spiritual emergency, because in order to be able to discern those things, you have to have some education and prefer, preferably some experience in all those things. So um, I would say anyone who's going through a significant dark period should first of all find any voices, dead poets, living sages, therapists, whatever, that give you a sense that you're not, there's not something wrong with you. And that is experienced just through you're carrying this wound, you get in the room with someone and you feel like you can show it and you're not going to get aggressively helped, aggressively advised, uh, but tenderly received and held, you know, like that feeling of a good mama, good papa. Well, it feels to me like a, a tremendous loving acceptance. Yes, yes. And a familiarity with, a familiarity with this kind of 
phoenix initiation, this kind of going down. So we want to know that the person has gone through something like that um, or has really has the capacity to hold it. And the reason I say that is my work, I'm not a therapist. And a therapist holds a loving space consistently and is really taking you on in a daily way. And, and I don't do that. So my work is wonderful as an adjunct to therapy. And I often refer people to therapists or to trauma resolution um, practitioners uh, because that, even though I'm educated in those things and can recognize them and can hold space, um, I just wish for everyone, a regular person to hold space and to carry someone through all of that. Besides which, whether it's a dark night or a loss, so many things in us become uncovered that really deserve space to digest and that sort of thing. What my work does is it gives a context and a touchstone. Many people going through the dark night um, say that my writing and what I teach is the one pure authentic place besides like St. John of the Cross where they feel reflected because there aren't a lot of voices of beings who have gone through this very thing and have expressed it in the down-to-earth way that I do. I mean, people say this, I don't claim anything except that I went through this thing and here I am. Here's how well, you You're, you're a wonderful vessel for the truth and for what, uh, what it's trying to be. Uh, it's true. It's true. I just don't like claiming any one true anything. But, but people have reflected to me, thank God for you. This article, I've read it a billion times. You know, your your guided meditations, I listen to them every day. You know, that kind of thing, because it's rare. You know, I am basically the human being I could have used when I was in the dark night. And I understand it really intimately. So, um, and that's, the dark night is different than trauma. But you can go through a dark night and unearth trauma. You can unearth all kinds of things in the dark night because it leaves no stone unturned. I can help somebody um, kind of have an overview and a sense and a context. I'm also abundantly available um, if someone is, um, you know, ripe for my work. What I try to do is do really deep retreats that happen here and there and there. But I also do online programs. Um, and one is not accidentally nine months long. Because people have the ability to relate to me through a Facebook group, through monthly Q&As, through the libraries, in this context of how to look at life through deep initiation versus through the everyday mind version that the cultural culture gives us. And it makes those of us who are here in a deeper way for something deeper feel sane, feel companioned. I did a series on the dark night, first one I did. Um, was on the phone at the time, and people were just weeping at hearing other people who were going through the same thing that they were going through. And I think that's the power of my work is that I speak with a voice that has gone through that and come out the other side. Um, I know the terrain and that kind of thing. So there are people who jump on my train and ride it for all it's worth you know, whatever they can afford from time and investment to do it. Um, some people, I do like a 
an online call every month on various themes. I, every month, uh, Open Circle out in the Bay Area hosts me online once a month. Um, I do a really introductory course in how to orient outside of the everyday mind called the Holy Work Challenge twice a year. And then that's a prerequisite for this nine-month thing. And then that one's followed by a seven-month thing. So basically, people can hop on the train and get regular support in that way, support that is rare. Um, and we have a, a list. When someone that's involved in my work finds a therapist, a, a healer, a trauma specialist who has been deeply useful to them, we add it to our resource list. So sometimes I say, you know, I really think you could use some trauma resolution. Oh, you know, you're in New Hampshire. Oh, we don't have anybody that's been recommended there, but here's someone. I don't recommend anyone, um, but the people who are involved in the work, um, I, I think that they are generally good tests because they're both attracted to this level of depth and they have had helpful support from one of these people. So um, I have writing, I have stuff on YouTube. I have, I, I try with my small body and my not a lot of support. I have an assistant, you know, to put out as much as I can that makes people feel sane as well as holding space for people to literally be exactly where they are, feel what they're feeling without being messed with. And so at you my retreat, you give them comfort and you give them hope. Well, in, yeah, I mean, that's true. And, and even more than that, I give them a sturdy, safe, clarity filled Sangha container to face what is before them and to digest it and to bloom um, and, and not be alone in it and not be alone in it, which is huge because oftentimes the people that we've been hanging around with and getting company from look at us like we're the ugly duckling and, the, and they're all swans. It could be nice to discover, you know, that we, we aren't an ugly duckling. We're just a different species of swan, you know. Um, <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> let me ask you, for those who don't understand this, Jeannie, you speak about the spiritual aspect of our humanness. Can you talk to people about that? Yeah. You know, I was raised by a Catholic and an atheist. And uh, he's now an agnostic um, and a very scientifically materialistic kind of person. You know, like if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. And you know, just show me logic and these kind of things. And then, you know, a mom who was, um, who deeply has a faith in a deity. So I grew up going to Catholic church and then coming home and saying, daddy, God made the corn grow. And then he would say, uh, I made the goddamn corn grow. I'm out here hoeing. And <laughs> wow, what a great, what a great relationship that must have been. <laughs> what's, what's, yeah, I know. And definitely had its challenges. Definitely had its challenges. But what that did was it gave me a rigor to approach my own um, subjective experience with to not claim things that I haven't experienced. Now, many of the things we experience on the spiritual path don't have logical ways to express them because they aren't of logic. They aren't of the left brain. Uh, they are more like ish. <laughs> and so oftentimes those realities are pointed to with metaphor, with poetry, 
with phrases as best we can. Um, and I love this, you know, I often say that all of the spiritual wisdom of the ages is uh, condensed in the songs of the 60s and 70s. And frequently one of those songs will come to describe some of these things. And Donovan has a song um, and the phrase that he sings is, um, all my life I have been searching for that which I cannot see. So some of us, whatever we call it, the truth, reality, God, we don't know, this feeling that this can't be all there is. Usually spirituality shows up not as a something, but as a gnawing lack. What completes me? I want to go home. I want to feel full. I want to have deep meaning in the oftentimes at midlife. But some of us have had the bug since we were young, and I certainly did. What's real? What can be counted on? What isn't being expressed by the things coming out of people's mouths that when I read a philosopher or I read an old Chinese poem, I go, yes. And that resonance that pulls us along, as Donovan says, looking for this thing we cannot see. We can't write home about it. If this is our research project, there's no way to show our badge to the people who haven't drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak, because it just evaporates under the scrutiny of the left brain. And yet we all know what we're talking about. It's a deeply subjectively felt something. And people throughout all ages have followed that call. And in mythology, it might be represented by the sirens or in Norse mythology, there's uh, the one who shows up in the snowy wood to beckon us, to beckon us, you know, um, something beckons, we can't see it, but through resonance, through the resonance, I call it food. Things feel like food. That poet, that teacher, the way that person sings, there's something beautiful. There's something that peeks through the everyday and beckons of a realm or a level uh, that is numinous, that is beautiful, that is inspiring. And that... You want to be able to hear it. Yes. You have to want to choose to let it in. I would say you were spiritually precocious and now you're guiding others who would like to tune in. Oh, I was after it with everything I had as best I knew. I was simultaneously trying to be a good um, doobie and, you know, get my ducks in a row. You know, my man, my baby, my house, my car, my, you know, because that's what the culture tells us will make us happy. Absolutely. But simultaneously, this thing was growing in me. Um, and eventually, you know, if we're lucky, God as hobby, spirituality as hobby, takes over and just starts driving the life. And that's when things get real. And that's when things get a little scary because we like our feeling of being in control. So that dimension is real. That dimension, um, I don't know how to say it. it you know, you can see when I start to talk, the light in my eyes, you know, the smile that comes on my face, because I have the experience of being fed from a well inside that opened as I um, gave the reins over. And it's not like I said, I'm giving the reins over. They were forced out of my hands. There is a deeper dimension that we can know. We can't know it with the mind. Um, and it's, it beckons often through wrecking things because when things are wrecked, 
when our boat is wrecked, you know, we can feel the water. The Indigo Girls have this great song where they sing, um, uh, I sailed my ship of safety till I sank it. I'm crawling on your shores. You know, and from the perspective of the one that wants to fit in, all we can see is loss. And at first, all we see is loss. What isn't there? What we're unable to do, et cetera. Uh, but when we start to feel uh, the full moon coming into our burned out mansion, it's a different story, you know, and that's when the gratitude starts rolling, the gratitude for the destruction, because we have been given such a huge gift, but the gift doesn't always companion us in a way we can understand through the dark. It feels like uh, someone put out the lights, God is gone, or whatever. I'd like to talk to, excuse me, about gratitude, and about that concept, but we are going to take a quick break. Okay. Before- uh, to allow a minute for our sponsors to keep this podcast free for our listeners. So we'll be right back. We're back. Thanks for tuning in to my enlightening, very enlightening and insights filled interview with Jeannie Zandi. And Jeannie, let's continue on by talking about gratitude and how that, um, I mean, you also spoke to the idea of letting one's loneliness cut more deeply and um, how you use that loneliness to um, achieve transformation. And I have the feeling that leads to gratitude. So would you like to speak to us about that? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And actually in my nine month course, the each month has a theme and the final month, the theme is gratitude. And I have a very different take on gratitude um, than many because the form of spirituality here is not so much one of cultivation being nice, you know, all that. It's much more seek ye first the kingdom of God and all else shall be added unto you. That gratitude is a natural part of our true nature that is obscured by our owies. So our owies and our entitlement and our life sucks and I'm just going to bang on it with my spoon like a baby, you know, like that's a part of our Uh, child within. It's a part of our, what needs to be healed. Uh, We have to be tender toward it. No blame or shame to anyone. You know, we, we, we have deep places we suffer and we're not pleased. So to add gratitude that in a way of you should not be feeling what you're feeling, paste gratitude on top, just makes us want to take out a machete and, and cut down some things, you know? And when I was in the dark night, people telling me, can you see that this is a gift and can you be grateful? I, I wanted to, I wanted to choke them to death, honestly, because what they were saying to me is where you are is not all right. Get rid of it and install this better perspective. And if I could have done that, I so would have, but you don't tell a liquefying caterpillar, Hey, can you come out here and wave your wings at me? it would just distract the caterpillar from the necessary melting it needs to do liquefying they do in there in order to grow wings. And it's the addiction to only wings that keeps us from acknowledging the deep wisdom of the dark and all of these places that we go through. So that said, gratitude we get for free. It's the craziest thing that when we are sitting in our burned out mansion, 
as I said before, from a perspective of the me, of the limited human who is identified and likes being in control, that looks like tragedy. And who's going to be grateful for tragedy? When we start to see all of the suffering we have been relieved of, the structures that, uh, that evokes of the structures that produce extra st- suffering, we have been relieved of it, that actually the holy has pinned us down and removed a sliver from our foot. And we start to feel life without that sliver. Even breath becomes miraculous. Even the view out the window, even the old bathrobe hanging on the hook. We start in our poverty. This is divine poverty. We start to have the capacity to see life as a gift, to see everything as a gift. Um, And we start to shift from a bratty, entitled, I get to dictate how life should be, and if it doesn't go my way, poop on you, to, wow, life, what are you trying to show me here? But if we try to paste that on top of the angry, entitled baby as a message that we should not feel what we feel, we're only going to have another level of suffering layered on top of the other one. Um, And so to me, uh, I like ways of orienting to the moment that have at their heart, I don't know. I don't know if this is a gift, but I'm willing. I'm willing to look at it. I'm willing to, I'm willing to open to it without my rant. I might have grief. I might not like it. I'm not going to rob myself of feeling those things because I do feel them. I do feel tremendously grief-stricken that I have lost how I, my way of being here, my former life, whatever. Yes, I'm going to grieve the person I lost. I'm going to grieve. I'm going to get up in the morning and not like this meaninglessness because I don't like it. At the same time, that sort of positionality of, and therefore there's a stinker and it's either God or me or you. It's like pulling the stinker out and replacing it with mystery. I don't know why I'm going through this. I don't know if we can have a, a thank you as a practice, we can just get up and say thank you. But oftentimes when we're going through hell, we don't feel thankful. And, no, it, and people we, feel the need to place blame. Yes. You're, you're doing, you're, you're absolving them from the need to place that blame and just saying, well, and experience what it is, take that drama out of it. Well, yes, because what is a transfer, you know, Rumi says, you know, welcome every guest that comes to the guest house because they might be bringing a message from the beyond, right? So every energy that comes, grief, inspiration, it's there for us to drop below the head and allow it to shape us, rock us in a very non-mental, more felt experience kind of a way. Um, The only exception to this is trauma. So if things are overwhelming, when we do that, it's probably time to get to some safe place rather than stewing in overwhelm, right? I love how you encourage people to work with therapists or healers. And then, and, and, and to us, I've done that. I, yeah. I, I mentioned to you that when I lost my husband, I worked with a coach, a very grounded life transition coach. But then I also used, I also had the blessing of having an energy healer who was able to be um, leveled 
of what I was going through. That so on the first bound plane, I was I was learning how to deal with what had happened, but I was getting a greater dimension of the meaning of what exactly. was yeah, was exactly. Yeah, exactly. me and giving and and they worked very well together. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I can't remember your question. Um, I was talking about the importance of um, letting one's loneliness cut through and how it leads to gratitude. And I also wanted to hear the story of your daughter uh, losing her balloon as your yeah. <laughs> well, my daughter, I protected her innate capacity to digest her experience from any interference from the outside. I let her cry when she cried. And I would say, it's sad, isn't it? Yeah. You know, just the not adding anything to her, just reflecting her if she needed. Uh, and so. Instead of a parent saying, why are you crying? I'll give you something to cry for. Right. Or you're you okay. You're okay. Oh, you're okay. Someone once tried to, you're okay her. And she said, I know I'm okay. That's why I can cry this deeply. Maybe you don't know you're okay. <laughs> But I know I'm I'm okay. So she said a lot of interesting things. Um, one of the things she said is, "Mama, I cry till I'm empty, then I rest in the emptiness." Wow! And that's precisely my experience. That when we cry all the way to the bottom of something, there's a beautiful resting in the womb of silence, an opportunity there. You know, and for her, she didn't have a lot of inner voices because your inner voices come from your parents, and we weren't telling her not to cry. She, I also had to work on her dad some <laughs> when she was young. He, he had a lot of uh, already good information about this kind of thing. But, um, you know, people get bothered by children who go in there and stay in there as long as they need. Um, also, uh, she, when I said to her, hey, Soph, you're kind of a wise little girl. If you had something to say to all the children of the world, as the most useful thing, what would you say? And she said, crying is good. And then I said, okay, how about adults? What do you think the one thing adults really need to know? She said, crying is good. <laughs> and uh, once she came to me when she was eight in a store, she's given me the rights to everything 10 and under. So just so you know, she's introverted and doesn't want to be talked about on the internet, but you know, she has given me rights. She came to me uh, in a store with a t-shirt that she wanted. It was a black t-shirt with white ink. It had a picture of a little monster on it grinning. And the monster had a plate of cookies and it said, come to the dark side, we have cookies. And I said, that's a great t-shirt, Soph, but you're eight. What do you know about the dark side? And she just, her whole face got this like beautiful, sublime openness to it which she would get in her face when she said something particularly deep. And she said, you know, crying and stuff. I was like, she had an innate sense of this beautiful world uh, that we are carried to when we reckon with the downward pull of our being, that that's actually uh, wisdom. You know, it's She's wisdom pull into healing. Yeah. So the story about the balloon is just an example of the way that I parented and a beautiful example of, you know, a child integrating um, uh, something that she lost. And she was really little and I gave her her first balloon. And I was the kind of mom, I was so excited to be a mother that I frequently, 
you know, did things a little bit too early. You know, I gave her a rattle that I had purchased from someone from Taos Pueblo, an indigenous boy from Taos Pueblo. Uh, I, I had purchased it the night I found out I was pregnant with her and I was so eager to give it to her. I gave it to her too early and she was, you know, she rattled, banged herself in the head. With me, you know, <laughs> she didn't know rattle from self yet, you know. So uh, I had, I gave her her first balloon. It was red. It was beautiful. It was huge. And I tied it very loosely around her wrist. And she was in love. She was absolutely, absolutely in love because she, this defied everything she had learned about the earth until this point that something could float above her, that she could pull on it and it would bounce and float. She was just in love. You could see her little face. It was like, wow, wow. wow. And when a child is allowed to digest their experience, they bring themselves to new experiences with their openness and their wonder, like, wow, what is this? You know, and she's learning another principle of being on earth, which is that some things float and are red and round. And, and she could see that her wrist was somehow related to its movement, complete surrendered awe and wonder. And you are my love, just merging. And then she pulled it once extra hard and the balloon went up and her hand was like this and it slipped off her hand and went up and she, her head went up and followed it. And then she realized it was it's not on my wrist anymore. And she started howling. She loved that balloon with all her heart. She wasn't done playing that game and it was gone. And she howled and howled and howled. And I said, it's gone. And she looked at me and she, so I'm just giving her a little bit of accurate information, not overlaying anything on, oh, this is so sad. Oh, let's get you a new one. Oh, you shouldn't do this. Because what I saw was that she was integrating something else about life, which is that things go. Things going is not a tragedy. We can be here grieving the thing that left. We can digest our experience. And in the grieving is the love. It's implicit. It's a beautiful thing that was tied to my wrist. And it can go. And I can digest that it left. I can be sad. And I can get in my bones that things go, and that, that, that's not something to be frightened of. That's not, oftentimes when we haven't been allowed to digest that when we're young, then when something really goes later in life that we leaned into, all the stored griefs of all time are in this big, scary closet. And that's why so many of us adults have a challenge when these big things happen. That's right. They don't know how to handle it because everyone's always used them for everything. Yes. And didn't hold space for their innate wisdom to learn and to reference off of the calm space holding parent that this is just a part of life. Now, mercy to us, we can't parent in that way if we haven't, if we don't know in our bodies that that's okay. Right. And so every one of us parents, we we're on earth. We're human parents. We parent the best way we know how, and this is the game on earth that's going on. It's not, although we can see it as tragic, the ways that we didn't parent perfectly. This is the game here. We're, we're here to be humans. You know? It's perfect. Well, that leads me to another question. What in your mind is fully engaged living? <laughs> 
I'm th- I just, I laughed because I'm thinking about some of my current experience experiments in fully engaged living. So because we're talking about encompassing all of this. Yes. With the losses and with the things that go on. Yes. So I would say that as we heal and develop, we increase our capacity for fully engaged living. If we have been traumatized and taught that leaving our house to go for a walk may endanger us, we stay in our house and we lose the exploration that we might have had because we're not equipped inside to have that exploration. Fully engaged living is both in the moment, turning toward what's given, finding what we need to deeply reckon with it, and healing and growing from it, so that in ever-expanding circles, we are able to bring ourselves fully to whatever crosses our paths. And so my capacity to fully experience, uh, for example, my emotional range was affected by my early life. And so maybe fully engaged living for me was just turning toward that grief and learning about how to grieve. Now fully engaged living um, actually contains very little grieving at all because the heart turned inside out. And instead I, I sail my boat into absolute open, adoring love with no fear of any grief closet because I don't experience someone going as a tragedy. Earlier in my life, fully engaged living might've been sailing my boat in there and then grieving my butt off. Uh, So it's, for me, fully engaged living is actually really turning toward life with everything we have. And uh, I'm fully engaged living now in the squirrel. It just jumped on, you know, it's like, hello, life. Yes. I love that you point out to people that they um, fully engaged living, the experience that they had have, can change. As yes, they we don't. And evolve and as they heal. Yes. I mean, so you we have to make become more and more fully engaged, even though yes. you're at the beginning that you are. Yes, and fully engaged for some of us. You know, I can remember a time when I was scared of deep water. I couldn't see in. And so I would swim from here to the dock, hoping that whatever was under there wasn't going to pull me under and drown me. Yeah. Jaws, the movie Jaws did no help. For, it was not helpful to me. <laughs> so for me, fully engaged living at that time was engaging the edge of where I was afraid and trying just the next bit. So it's in a way engaging with life in a, in a full, I'm here for it kind of a way. Now, many of us have a lot of no way. I hate life. It's been my enemy, those kind of things. And so fully engaged living might be sticking our toe out into, you know, getting some help with that from a therapist. And then fully engaged living in its full bore, you know, in the moment, really eating that strawberry, tasting every bit of what that strawberry is giving you, feeling the cold of it, the yum of it, giving your whole being to the miracle of whatever is before you. You know, and and that 
capacity increases as we heal the places where we are afraid and grief-stricken and limited and have shrunken capacities. My capacity to relate to other human beings has expanded exponentially in my journey and walk. And that is, and I'm never going to stop. I think you've just defined why a person, why people should consider healing <laughs> and, what, and what the advantage is to um, the, why healing is important to our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, we wouldn't try to uh, fly a kite that had a broken spine, you know, broken brace. We would, we would do something with that brace first before trying to fly it. And sometimes we are ready for kind of being in the Red Cross tent, mending things. And sometimes we are ready to take our little boat for a little ride and see what else we can handle. Um, but if we do too much of taking the boat for a ride without acknowledging and healing the places where we're afraid or whatever, it just becomes self-abuse. We just have another experience of not being able to. Um, and this is the recognition of yin, of healing, of the receptive, is that this is a huge, useful dimension of our humanness to admit that we're human. <laughs> this is really useful. And this is a model of spirituality that is not Pollyanna-ish. It's not skipping over the reality of being human, nor is it uh, painting it all as a tragic, big, horrible mistake we're going to get lost in. There's something about the wedding of heaven and earth in us that sets up an invitation for a lived dialogue until the two are embodied with deep wisdom. And that's what I'm, you know, I, I just love that whole, the whole thing. The whole thing is just so right, you so know. Important. So important. And, and wherever we are, wherever we are, we each are doing an independent study. This isn't a foot race. Each being is working a different knot, doing a different study. And they're all worthy wherever it is that we are. Some of them look more tragic than others. Uh, we don't know what lessons. We don't know why we have the tutors we have. Um, but they're all with integrity. There isn't a single human being who is screwing up. We're just, we're given what we're given and we heroically do our best with it. That's, that's wonderful. I think that, you know, it's so tremendously wise and helpful. People say, what is, why should I go through all this trouble to yeah. walk out of my comfort zone Yeah. And, uh, to do this, but hmm, maybe I can uh, taste more, enjoy more, appreciate more, experience more i've learned i felt that myself and um what's going on Jeannie? i want to ask you as you download information can you explain to people where is that information coming from and also talk to um the integration tools you use when you're when you're helping people so that yeah. people yeah. are considering whether they'd like to work with you so you yeah. can explain um, so one of the things that happened, uh, along my trajectory and in the dark night, um, prior to the dark night, for the most part, 
I relied on the everyday mind. And I, my GPS was the everyday mind. It was, does it make sense? Is it logical? Is it culturally sanctioned? You know, that was very focused in the everyday mind. One of the things that the dark night does is that it eclipses the everyday mind. The everyday mind is seen as the source of much suffering. You know, it's good for trying to figure out how to get a banana out of a tree, but it's not very good for feeling into uh, the truth of the heart. Uh, when I was in the dark night and I lost the GPS of the mind, it was very frightening because I was left without guidance. I was plopped in the present moment, um, which at the time I had a lot of feelings about, like, I'm in the unknown. I don't know where I'm going. This is freaking me out. I can't see ahead. And Rumi says, you know, don't look into distances. That's not for human beings. Um, there's so much guidance in Rumi's poems for some of these things. So what I started to notice was that dropping my attention into felt experience uh, alleviated my suffering a bit. And that fusing attention to the mind, which is pretty much how we're all conditioned, and letting that thing get going in a speedy way freaked me out. It increased my suffering. So I kept pulling my attention off of the everyday mind and putting it into my felt experience. And I started to have experiences that, um, how do I say, the sense of boundary around my body would soften and dissolve. And I would be sitting more as cloud, more as a field of presence than an it. Uh, and for whatever reason, uh, having attention in that wedding of presence and sensation um, caused uh, me to be more in touch with a knowing that was more embodied and caused a level of openness that would feed me things to say. Uh, they, the things that I say are um, a blend of the wisdom of the creature of the body, of the wisdom of a lived life. They are vibrating in the lived space that I am and a very intimate residing in the reality of unity. Um, sometimes the things I say, they you know, it's like I can tell someone is afraid from 50 yards just by tuning my attention over there into the felt realm. And that's something that I think creatures do. Creatures, the creature of the body, animals, can sense things from far away. Wolves all turn at once. Who's the leader? You can't tell. A school of fish, same way. They're tuning, they're not, you know, they're not like leader to pack over, you know. There's something in that collective residing that communicates like sonar through water. And so I am more of the mystical variety in that my depth and my wisdom comes from a deep surrender to the unknown. I am given things to say and things to do. Sometimes they just look sensible. Sometimes they look wacky. Sometimes when I'm addressing someone, I just start to sing a song. It's tremendously nonlinear, 
and the sense of it uh, usually comes out in the wash, but at the time it's like, what's that, you know? And it's just the way I live now. There's no conflict in me between the pull of intuition and the logic of the mind because they have integrated in one single way of being. Um, so I would say the source of life, the source of breath is the same source of everything. Uh, and that's what lives me, whatever it is that's living everything else. Um, I don't have like a, a chief saint or a posse of guides. I'm not visual. I mean, I may have those. I may have those, right? Uh, but it's all experienced for me as one single vibrating fabric. And I don't have a need to personify it. Uh, there's just this sense of obedience and an ability to feel with the entire instrument of my body and beyond what is simple and so and I, I just don't have any temptation to speak anything that I don't directly experience so there's it a feels, lot of it feels to me like it's an unfiltered knowing yeah yeah is it in a way saying it in a simplistic way but you just it's just an unfiltered knowing yeah. from your experience of what's coming through you yeah Genius. and then the uh, you asked one other thing that was the first Right. And the second one, what was the other question? The tools that you use. The tools. Okay. So, so many. And they grow out of the alive moment of speaking to someone. Um, one of the key things that I find useful um, is to help people to establish the capacity to pull attention off of the everyday mind and ground in the unknown moment. Um, and I, twice a year, I do a program called the Holy Work Challenge. And uh, that name grew up organically because I wasn't trying to come up with a technique. I was just trying to tell the members, the participants of a particular committed program, how I hold space for people. And I came up with seven elements as I was describing it. And I gave it to them as the homework. And I said, just go home and play with these things. And it became, as somebody, one of the men said, it's not the homework, it's the holy work. So that's its name now. And so uh, I, I do a 30-day online program where people are supported to make their own commitment to explore this. Uh, and then they get support and a ton of mercy um, there's even a deep teaching about commitment and the harshness we've generally experienced with commitment and failure and the combination of intention and mercy, intention and mercy and roomies, even though you've broken your vow, perhaps a thousand times, come, come again to so this beautiful, I try again, this beautiful learning about accepting one's humanness in that. But that is one of the deep tools. But because I am so practical. Uh, in in exchanging with people, I will give them little bits of homework to do. I have a visualization uh, that helps people to feel the sovereign, holy temple of their being and unplug from a more codependent way of being. You know, just everything I do, I have little tips to try it out because everything I'm teaching, I'm interested in 
embodying these things, not just learning with the brain and then going home and being just as conflicted as ever, mm-hmm. um, but actually little experiments that help us to, to embody. And so just the simplest thing pe- people can take home from this, if they're listening, is just to play with dropping attention into one's felt experience. Let yourself feel your footsteps, your breath, your heartbeat, your weight in the chair. Um, and see if you play with that, uh, what that's like for you. And we can experience all kinds of things. If people experience overwhelming panic, that indicates that people are probably carrying a level of fear that it would be useful to find some kind of trauma resolution person, like someone who practices somatic experiencing. And I always say this because people who carry trauma and trauma doesn't have to be some horrific thing that happened in your childhood. Um, People who carry this kind of thing in their bodies are deeply attracted to spirituality and often feel like failures because dropping into their bodies doesn't feel good. It feels like a tiger's about to attack them. So if there's that level of overwhelm, it's good to know that there is a modality, at least one, there are a few of them that can help with that. It's very common when I first dropped my attention into my felt experience, it was like, why would I want to do that? My body is a tense brick. And so that shows us that the body is carrying so much, it doesn't know how to unwind it. And one of the ways I unwound it was to dance, to shake, to let the body move the way it wants to move. And so this is a, this is not a, embodiment is not an overnight happening. It's actually, uh, usually we're driven to it because nothing else works. We would all love to take a magic pill and know ourselves as God and live happily ever after in divine love with ourselves and our neighbors. Uh, But the human walk is rarely like that, even in the luckiest of circumstances. And we are actually asked to turn toward the slowest, dopiest, most painful parts in ourselves and and find a way to make space for them and get to know them. And if we need help with that, because we don't, all we're filled with is yuck. You know, there's so many beings out there offering themselves these days to hold a sweet space, to hold our hands through some of that. Because just like in the myths, harpies are in the woods and they're yelling bad things at us. And sometimes we don't know how to walk through the woods with those suckers in there, you know. And sometimes those people that are helping you, like Jeannie, Irene recently first podcast. And <laughs> yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah, good for you. Way to go, Irene. <laughs> That's what it's what we're all about. Jeannie, tell people how they can get a hold of you. Now well, they're fascinated, they're curious, they want to yes. find out more. Well, here's what is nice about me is that I recognize that not everybody wants to jump into the deep end. So there are little ways you can kind of put your toe in the water. You can go on YouTube, you can search for my name. You can find some nice benign guided meditations, a few little snips of me talking um, and sort of feel like, and I, I really advise people feel with your heart, feel with your body. Does this feel true to you? Do you like this? Does you, do you start getting a smile on your face, you know, and maybe you get a little do do like the sound in jaws, like, Ooh, deep water, because it is deep water. Um, and we, we have to want the deep water, but there's no, Nobody holds anybody underwater, you know, in what I do. It's like, so you can do that. Um, I have a website, 
and it's an old website. We're working on a new one, but you can see my events there. And I do an online using Is this. Is your website called Living is Love? Or it's is called it geniezandy.com. So for everyone, it's J-E-A-N-N-I-E-Z, like in zebra, A-N-D-I, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And that's good to know because almost everything you can find about me including ancient letters to the editor I've written on the internet. Um, everything you can find through my name. So on Facebook, I have a public public facing page called the work of Jeannie Zandi. Um, and that one has, we generally put all my events on there. I have a private Facebook group called friends of Jeannie Zandi. And if you search for that, you will find that and you can ask to be added. Um, and I post something every day there. So that's a nice daily way to get a little sniff of what I'm talking about. Uh, every month or so, I do an online meeting. Uh, no one needs to know anything to come on those. You don't need to speak. People's videos are off, so no one sees you. Um, and you can just come in and listen. We meditate. I do a guided meditation. I talk and then people voluntarily exchange with me on those. Now, do they um, find that through Facebook, Jeannie? Or the email list. The email list is probably the most reliable as long as you make sure that they're not going to your spam. And it's the email list that comes from Jeannie. On my website. Yeah, on my website, there's, there's little places you can click and email Amy um, or add yourself. I'm not sure how it's working these days. Amy is my assistant. She's very nice. Um, and, uh, then the, the step up from that is public evenings where I, I'll do a talk somewhere. Um, and then people can ask questions. Nobody has to do anything. You can sit in the back. If it feels scary, you can run out. I like to let people know, you know, they can touch this without having the shark pull them down. You know, <laughs> uh, I do series online, um, on topics. I have an online school. That is school.geniezandy.com that has some free uh, things to watch. And it also has things you can purchase. Um, I have series on various topics. And when I do a series online, um, I then edit it and add it to the school as we have time to add. But there's, there's a good amount of stuff in there. Um, I have pieces of writing. Uh, is that everything? And then I do deeper things like a day long event. Um, and then I have retreats and the retreats I screen for to make sure people are ready because that when you come, deep that's immersion. what deeper version. Yes. When you step into a retreat, you're basically saying, I'm here for the five days. Come what may, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to participate. I'm going to talk to you. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to enter in, you know, um, so it's nice to come to a public thing or do a series because I really do hold a very deep space for people. Uh, one of the things about all my spaces, I say they are crying friendly. And so if someone's going through a big grief thing, they can sit in the retreat and they can cry the entire time. They can tune out, put earplugs in and curl up like a baby um, and not listen to a word I say if they feel overwhelmed. So it's a, it's a, a nice space. Sometimes I will, um, if someone's got a lot of trauma um, and they want to come to a retreat, we'll have a talk about if they feel like they can, you know, what is this? And do I feel like I can handle this? We have a little application screening thing because 
I don't want people to come and get overwhelmed and have it be too much, you know, but um, I just finished one in, uh, in the mountains in Santa Cruz, with the redwoods all around. And uh, another unique thing about my work is that I have uh, a background in gender conditioning. And so I do retreats for just women. I do retreats for just men. I am intimately connected to the way the conditioning sits on women and men, and I can hold a really safe space for that. Um, so that's another kind of unique thing about me as a teacher. That's is that cool. It's really fun. We're about to do a little uh, thing out in the Bay Area with a group of men and a group of women, and the men are going to meet alone twice, the women are going to meet alone twice, and then we're going to meet together and talk to each other in a safe space where healing can happen. So. Boy, that sounds like fun. That sounds really, really interesting. Super fun. But, but what would you say, Jeannie, that your tip is for finding joy in life? Well, I would say that, you know, the Christians have something called taking up your cross. And we don't have to be Christian to glean the wisdom from this. It's to turn toward your life as, uh, as an assignment rather than an affliction and to seek out whatever it is that helps you heal and know the truth about yourself. Um, the, there are so many things that shut out the joy. Joy is an, an aspect, just like gratitude, as we were speaking earlier, joy is an aspect of our true nature. But to know and embody our true nature, um, we need to start to unplug from all of the things we learned about ourselves and start on the investigation of what is reliable, what is simple. Um, I found allowing myself to start to tune in to actual life in the moment the feel of life, the sounds of life, the taste of a strawberry, uh, to have been the entrance onto a straight shot into um, living here from joy. Uh, because it's really, you know, yes, we have pain. Uh, yes, we have emotional pain. Some of these things we actually have to wrangle with and we have to find our way through them. Um, but joy that comes from our uh, true nature is joy that has nothing to do with the conditions of our life. It is given freely. That doesn't mean we can just sit down and easily find it all because um, there are things that rise in us that want to be digested. But I would say, you know, turn toward, turn toward your life and, and say yes, even yes to your no. And go find the places where you can really deeply plumb the depths of these human questions that are lived questions. It's wonderful. And I'm and wonderful. And that gives people a lot to think about and to digest. Okay, thank you, Jeannie, so much. Oh, you're so welcome. What fun. Thank you. And thank you for what you do. I mean, I can't even imagine all the people that are inspired and supported by the people that you have on here and your own voice, too. Thank you. It's, it's a great honor. And uh, you're pursuing such a, a, a noble, you're, 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 it's a noble healing pursuit that you are um, 
completely involved with. And it's a precious and loving guide for all of us. Your work is just wonderful. Thank, Thank you, you dear. so much. And in the spirit of healing and living as love to oneself and others, here's a reminder, everyone, that you can see the full channel and all brief from Rebirth podcast episodes on irenewinebirth.com. And make sure to follow us and like us. We've got to like us, everyone. Come on. And like us on um, at, on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks again for joining us. And as I always like to say, to be continued. Many okay. blessings and bye for now. <laughs>